0: This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. The Yidan Prize Foundation, a global foundation that seeks to support ideas and practices in education that can change the lives and societies across the world has just announced the winner of its 2021 Yidan Prize for Education Research. The prize is worth close to $4 million, US dollars half of which is for research and half of which is for the winner. The winner this year is Eric Hanyashek, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University for his work linking the fields of economics and education. According to Andreas Schleicher, head of the program on individual student assessment known as the PISA and who who is the chair of the Yeadon Prize Committee, Uh, According to to, uh, Schleicher, Hanushek has made an amazing range of education policy areas amenable to rigorous economic analysis, thereby linking better learning outcomes to long-run economic and social progress. Dr. Hanushek has written extensively and with great influence on the impact of school finance policy on student performance, He's written about the connection between student achievement and economic growth. He's emphasized the importance of the teacher in the classroom, and he's written on numerous other topics. So I'm very pleased today to have Eric Hanushek with me on the Education Exchange. Congratulations, Rick, for winning the world's most prestigious prize in education research.
1: Well, Paul, thank you. I'm obviously thrilled by this prize. Uh, But it's nice to be back talking to you about education research also.
0: Well, let me ask you a question. You're an early pioneer in this field. How much progress have we made in the field of the economics of education? Is the quality of the research today better than it was when you began many decades ago, or is it about the same?
1: Well, I think there's no doubt that the quality of the research has improved enormously Um, this is more than just use of economics and education research, but education research in general. I attribute um, a part and maybe a large part of this to just having better data about student outcomes and student performance and linking that performance of students both to what goes on in schools and in the household and families and linking that performance to subsequent gains in the labor market and national economy. And so with the data that have become available, we have seen um, enormous progress in terms of research, research that's overturned a lot of formally strongly held beliefs.
0: Well, I suppose also we have uh, technology, computers can analyze millions of observations very quickly. I can remember when I first began doing research, I was using a counter sorter and uh, we could run a hundred cards through a counter sorter and come up with a finding. Now they're they're doing this with millions of observations in in less time than it took me to do my counter sorter.
1: Well, when I first started working on education, it was somewhat accidentally. It was the... uh, publication of the Coleman Report in the mid-60s that was really the first large-scale quantitative study of student performance. The Coleman team had surveyed some 600,000 students and given tests to these students uh, in the mid-60s. And then they went to do a statistical analysis of this data. Um, what they did was sample a thousand of the 600,000 at a time to be able to analyze it and then they noted that this was putting a lot of strain on their uh, technical capacities.
0: yeah no it's amazing what computers can now do but also we do have new uh, uh, statistical techniques econ- econometric techniques and also a better uh, conceptual frameworks for analyzing data. We now really place a great deal of emphasis on having experimental or quasi-experimental data. I think that's a very important development as well.
1: Oh yeah, there's no doubt about it that the the general field of empirical research has progressed and this has filtered into education. Um, And I'm looking a little bit narrowly at the, Uh, economists who are working in education, and there's just been an explosion. When I first started, you could literally count the number of economists working on education issues on one hand.
0: Well, you know, I compare that to political scientists, because political science has not embraced uh, new technologies as quickly, and it hasn't embraced the field of education as as part of its discipline, whereas economists have said, education is about building human capital. Economists study human capital. Education is at the very center of economics.
1: Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, at the time when the Coleman report came out and started to data on student performance, the whole idea of human capital was being developed in economics and there was a lot of pushback to it frankly at that time because people said you can't think of humans as as like machines and we this is just wrong to do that Um, but in fact we've seen that that is a huge unifying concept of of thinking about the quality of, of people in the labor market and uh, production.
0: Well, in po- you know, political science, uh, people say, well, education can't be politics. This is all about the children. Well, I think we've discovered that <laughs> politics <laughs> is a lot of what education, at least in the United States, but I think globally, it's all about because the, the political forces at work shaping our educational system. Uh, are are in the way of progress uh, all over the world. And uh, it really uh, uh, it makes me sort of feel like the political sciences should be right there in the middle of this field in the way economists are.
1: Well, I, I think so too. I mean, the last year with the COVID uh, pandemic experience, we've seen politics and education all over the place. And the idea that uh, there are, a large number of major city school districts that never opened for in-person instruction through the entire last year, which uh, is quite a remarkable statement about the politics of education.
0: Yeah, it is uh, because uh, all the emphasis was placed on um, safety and very little on long-term a need for children to acquire what they need to be uh, successful in life. But let me ask you this question, because if COVID is related to this. If it, research has improved, okay, the quality of the data has improved, the analysis has improved, the quantity of data that's being analyzed, the number of people working in the field, all those things are, but how about policy impact? Has education research had a bigger policy impact, does it have a bigger policy impact today than in the past?
1: I think so, but this is where your discussion of politics comes in. There are lots of forces that are pushing to resist any change in education. And um, people bemoan the fact that legislatures don't get out and, and work on education issues But in fact, the results of education don't appear uh, for many years in the future after kids are in school. And so politicians seem to be able to write it off. Now, I'm hopeful and I think that there are some signs that that's changing in the last uh, 16 months when we've had school closures and hybrid instruction and so forth. We've seen a lot of parents that are much more attuned to what's going on in the schools, and it could be that some of these things are changing so that we start really focusing on what's being learned. Now, back to your question, have things really changed? Well, at least the focus has changed a lot. Um, uh, I think, and I'm rather proud of uh, uh, some of the influence I had on it, of changing the United Nations um, Sustainable Development Goals in Education. There were goals of the UN and the World Bank, uh, starting in 1990, that basically said, all kids should get at least a a lower secondary school education. Um, But they never said anything about the quality of that education. So that there was a lot of added education around the world following that goal, but not much sign that people were learning a lot more. And the recent change in 2015 of, of, to the sustainable development goals added a quality element. And it is, I think, helping to focus attention on what students are learning in a large number of countries around the world.
0: Well, Andreas Schleicher, the person who was the chair of the prize committee that awarded you the Eden prize, uh, actually has played an important role in that regard because by conducting the PISA assessments uh, in the developing world as well as in the uh, developed world, he's highlighted the very low level of educational achievement in so many countries in in the developing world and I think a lot of places thought they were making progress because uh, kids were actually apparently going to school, but PISA's revealing they haven't been learning what they need to learn.
1: Well, the differences across the world are really astounding, um, and in my opinion, the only way we'll have economic development in some of the developing parts of the world is to improve the schools. We can put in money to build bridges and, and improve the infrastructure and so forth, but that won't have the long-run development effect unless we can, in fact, improve the skills of the population of these people, and that's a matter of schooling.
0: Well, I also feel that um, in, uh, we have to bring uh, corruption to an end, I think corruption and violence in politics. Are, are, are two of the most powerful negative forces in many parts of the world today. And until you can have administrative structures that are honest, and until you can reduce ethnic violence to a manageable level, it's gonna be so hard for many countries to create the educational system that's needed to generate the human capital you're talking about.
1: I, I think you're right, um, but, there are places in the world where we have seen the results of in fact, improved schools. Uh, East Asia is the obvious example where uh, the education has so dramatically changed the character of those places in the last 50 years. After the Korean War, uh, the average education level of parents was about two years of education Um, And now Korea is one of the most educated societies in the world, and you see the results in terms of their industry and their uh, ability to interact globally in ways that um, other, other places that have not emphasized education haven't been able to do.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Korea is an incredible success story, as is Taiwan. Uh, the small little countries that are sort of isolated and are afraid of the uh, powerful nations near them are some Finland's another example of, of just the same thing. Uh, they seem to be aware of the desperate need to raise their human capital to maintain the sovereignty of their landscape.
1: You're absolutely right um, but it's not limited to that. I mean uh, the China itself, has, in fact, uh, made some dramatic strides in education, not across the whole country, but uh, certainly along the developed East Coast of China. Uh, They have top-notch schools, and it's leading to the development of science and engineering that is becoming really a world force.
0: Now, I noticed that you plan to use the research money that uh, has been awarded to you with the uh, the prize you have won uh, for uh, research in, in Africa. And uh, I'm I'm curious, do you have any more to say about, about your research agenda? Because there's absolutely no place in the world that could benefit more from exactly your emphasis on school quality and, uh, 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 raising uh, the level of human capital. So what's your agenda?
1: Well, I'd ha- be happy to talk about it. it. My agenda is not so much a research agenda, but to try to find ways to take research and evaluation and be able to apply it in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. In work that I've been doing around the world and trying to understand the pattern of student outcomes and and the quality of schools south africa i mean africa in general and latin america and south asia stand out as being way behind the rest of the developed world there's been an emphasis in uh, the world bank and other development agencies on trying to improve the schools but it hasn't seemed to to have taken hold in lots of these places. Um, not, that's not entirely the case, but in, in general, it's the case. And the idea that I am pursuing is that you really need local people to ha- who have the skills to evaluate and read data and research and analysis, and then can try to take that Knowledge from research and evaluation on education into policy. And so, the idea that is behind uh, uh, my proposed use of the EDAN funds is to develop a fellowship program that would take local people, first from Africa, to give them a, a sort of crash course over a year in evaluation methods in research and in policy uh, development, so that they can go back to their countries and start to introduce modern rigorous thinking into education policy. So it's, the idea is really to try to translate um, research findings into actual policies. It actually matches some of the things that you and I are doing with the Hoover Education Success Initiative, where we're trying to do exactly that in the United States of taking what we know about uh, from, from research about good education policies and disseminate it and get it into the policy process within states and localities in the US. So this idea is to take that idea and try it out in Africa.
0: Well, you mentioned earlier the impact that COVID has had on our educational system. And I'm wondering, uh, and I know you wrote a piece on this uh, some time ago, how would you quantify the, the the impact that COVID has had on the learning of this generation?
1: Well, this has uh, been a, something that I find has, has escaped the attention of many people. What, if you look at the closures of schools from March 2020 through the summer in the US. Um, on average, our estimates that I've done with Ludger Woosman and University of Munich, our estimates are that the average student suffering the closures will have 3% lower income throughout their lifetimes. Um, that estimate was based upon uh, assuming that the schools in September of 2020 went back to their old quality state. But of course that didn't happen in many, many places in the United States that uh, um, closures continued in many places, we had hybrid learning and that just wasn't as effective. And my current estimates are that um, if this school year returns us to the schools we had in 2019, Uh, the average student will have lost six to 9% of their lifetime earnings. Um, Now that has a huge impact on the U.S. economy also, that the U.S. economy on average, um, I would estimate would be three to 4% lower than it would have been without the pandemic unless something happens to make the schools better. This assumes that the schools return to their old quality state. And if that's the case, you can view these as permanent losses. But if we could make the schools better, we could in fact hope to uh, ameliorate some of those losses.
0: Well, that's the theory of the Biden administration and also the Trump administration for that matter. They together put over a trillion dollars more into education over the next three years than ever before. So it's a massive increase, uh, maybe, I don't know, 25 to 30 percent increase over the next three years over what is business as usual, uh, which is a massive infusion of fiscal resources into our educational system. Won't that make the difference?
1: Well, this is is a test of one of the Uh, controversies in the economics of education. If you just drop a lot more money on the schools, will achievement go up? And so we're now getting an experiment that can in fact look into that. What I'm worried about, frankly, is that many school systems are just awash with money. That their uh, per pupil spending amounts have gone up dramatically. But it's only for two or in part three years from now that that money is around from the federal government and then it goes away. So you could see that that money could actually make schools worse off in the long run uh, in the following way. If school systems decide they'll just increase all teacher salaries by a proportionate amount to use this money, Three years from now, they're going to find that they can't afford the, those teachers, and there's going to be all kinds of chaos in the schools. On the other hand, if they use uh, those funds to enhance the abilities of their teachers to do better, provide uh, uh, technology to allow them to individualize instruction, provide the technology to expand the Uh, reach of their most effective teachers, you could actually see that it could make schools better. The current discussion doesn't lead me to be very sanguine about the the possibilities, but perhaps it will be better.
0: Well, I have uh, talked to some superintendents out there in previous podcasts and asked them this question. And I'm getting, uh, uh, certainly one thing they're doing is uh, putting money into uh, school buildings, so some of the money is going into uh, improving ventilation systems and doing the kinds of things that uh, are related to uh, reducing the spread of COVID and other things are just capital improvements. Uh, you know, it, it, there's always been a greater demand for capital improvement in, in this educational system than the uh, government's been willing to support. Uh, could this be? the right way to invest the money?
1: Oh, I think that people will be happier with it, and that might be better than just wasting the money, but I don't think that that's going to, in fact, turn around the the quality issues and the learning loss issues that we are facing. Um, And I'm much more worried about those. So some school systems are, in fact, trying to Develop tutoring programs to basically extend the quantity and quality of instruction for kids. You know, it's particularly important for um, disadvantaged kids. Um, During the uh, closures and during the last year of um, sort of erratic teaching, better, higher income families on average found ways to provide education for their kids, whether it was to get them into private schools that were still open or whether they developed learning pods that they had people to help their kids, whatever. Less advantaged families in general did not have that uh, option, those options available to them. They were often working away from the homes where the better off families had people working at home and helping out their kids regularly. Um, and so what we've seen is a, a huge difference, uh, growth in the uh, variation in achievement of kids uh, because of the closures. The uh, upper income, more advantaged kids have sort of held their own from the data we can see, the disadvantaged kids have done considerably worse than they would have with the schools. And so the gaps have increased. Tutoring is one possibility of solving that if we can focus the tutoring on the kids that really need it. But again, uh, I think that the schools are pretty slow and and sluggish in getting around to using the funds and uh, that way and to use it productively. And so what I'm worried about is that we're gonna go through this period with lots of funds to t- potentially help, but that they don't really get to where they're needed.
0: Well, the latest information coming in says enrollments are down in our, in our uh, school systems across the country, every, every report's the same. Mm-hmm. It's especially the case in big cities, you're getting uh, juniors and seniors not coming back to school uh, looking like they're turning into dropouts. You're, you're uh, uh, getting little kids not coming to school for either their parents are holding them back at home or, or something like that. And the absenteeism rate of those who are supposedly enrolled in school has just, uh, you know, mushroom. So uh, there's all kinds of signs that you literally there's, there's, a lot of kids who just are not getting any education at all. And those are probably concentrated in the kind of disadvantaged groups that you were referring to.
1: No, absolutely. And that, that is the concern that there's gonna be this group that will end up much worse at the end of their schooling career. And that's gonna follow them throughout their uh, time in the labor market, throughout their careers. It's also gonna follow the United States uh, because our workforce will be less skilled, less qualified. And that has ramifications for the growth rate of the GDP and incomes in the future. And so we're gonna find that we are noticeably worse off and poorer because of this, unless we can find ways to actually improve the quality of schools.
0: Yeah, one of the disconcerting things is that there's a head in in the sand approach to all of this because a lot of school systems say, I don't want to know what's happening. So uh, in Massachusetts, we do have results uh, from uh, uh, tests that have been administered uh, in the past. We can now compare uh, current from two years ago and we have seen a huge education loss in Massachusetts along the lines that you've been talking, but uh, many states are just not going to be administering the accountability systems that were, uh, we thought permanently intact in the, in the past. Uh, what's your assessment of the of when will we get accountability back and uh, uh, the possibility of really being able to track what is happening in our schools?
1: Well, that's, that's a worrisome issue because Um, In particular, the teachers unions, who have been against having any accountability for some time, have used the pandemic as an excuse and a reason to justify doing away with testing. Um, Your Massachusetts Teachers Association was first out of the gate, as far as I can tell, in March of 2020 arguing that an immediate response to the school closures was permanently eliminating the accountability tests in Massachusetts, uh, which, of course, had nothing to do with the pandemic. Um, unfortunately, there, there are signs that that's catching on, that, uh, other, that people are sort of going along with this idea that maybe we don't need the testing and so forth. But it's just virtually impossible to think of improving the schools if you don't know where you're at and whether you're getting better or not.
0: Well, thank you, Rick, for your insights into the state of education research. Congratulations on winning the Yidan Prize. Uh, I, uh, have had, uh, uh, I appreciate very much your sharing your thoughts with us today on the Education Exchange.
1: Thanks for having me, Paul.
0: I've been speaking with Eric Hanushek, winner of the prestigious Eden uh, Prize for Education Research. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.